Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Now, an important update, our John Farrell in conversation with the leader of General Motors. Let's listen. Very pleased to say that joining us now is the GM chief, Mary Barra. Mary, fantastic to catch up with you. I want to whip through the Southside research off the back of these numbers. Dan Ives Wedbush, by laying major groundwork for a game-changing EV strategy. City, a positive outcome. It increases our conviction, by Jeffries and Philippe Houchard is a little bit more balanced on this. He seems surprised by the volume guidance, two to three times bigger than what they'd heard going into this. Where's that coming from, Mary? Where are you getting that visibility from? Well, as we look at the year, we've been working uh, closely with uh, the semiconductor manufacturers, our tier ones, to make sure that we you know, have the best possible forecast for what we're going to be able to build this year. Recall last year we were hit a, a bit hard with some of the COVID impacts in Malaysia. So that's where we see um, you know, the opportunity to see a, on a global basis, a, you know, 25, greater than 25% increase from a production um, perspective. And uh, that is assuming that we're not going to have any you know, dramatic changes from a COVID or a supply chain perfect. Uh, perspective, but we feel very confident. And also, what's exciting is we know there is strong demand for our vehicles. So uh, I'm very. Uh, I think 22 has the opportunity to be a very good year. I want to hit that demand story in just a moment. Clearly, there's a balance at play through last year, and you nailed that balance with the stock performance we saw. A balance between the chip access and pushing it towards the higher price vehicles. Now it's almost the opposite. And I think there's some disappointment around that, Mary, that you get the better access, you get the better volume, but the average price comes down. How do you balance that? How do you optimize the balance there for 22? Well, uh, you know, again, this we had record performance this year, and again, hats off to the GM team with all the work that they did, the challenges that they overcame. And as we get into next year, you know, not only are we going to be selling across many more segments, last year in 21, we focused on our most in-demand and capacity-constrained vehicles. So as we open it up to, you know, other uh, allocation to chips to other products, uh, you know, it is a different from a, a profitability perspective. And we also are investing in growth. And so, you know, we're in investing for the future. We know there's a huge opportunity, not only from an EV perspective, uh, an AV perspective with crews, but also across the board from a software perspective, whether it's ICE or EVs, uh, we see an opportunity to really grow from a, from a services and subscriptions perspective. Mary, you've got to help me with the numbers when it comes to CapEx and investment. The numbers we've seen in this industry are just huge. The team here at Bloomberg came out with a story. Ford yesterday throwing another 20 billion at this transition. You said, quote, we're going to be increasing spending. That much is clear. Is the answer always going to be more when you're asked how much you need to throw at this story, Mary? Well, you know, we've already announced between 20 and 25 that we're going to invest $35 billion, and we've been investing that big announcement yesterday, or last week at, in Michigan, $7 billion for conversion of a plant to build trucks, uh, EV trucks, as well as a, our third battery plant. We're pulling ahead uh, our fourth battery plant. We'll be making that announcement in the, the first half of this year, as well as a, an additional um, EV truck plant. So we're seeing the demand for our products, and we're seeing customers' willingness to adopt EVs. That's what's calling, causing us to pull ahead. You know, we're, uh, we're going to continue to do that, and you know, we've got the, the capability to do that. And uh, you'll just see our number grow as we continue to invest in uh, EV and AV capability. Right at the end of the call yesterday, you talked about the dividend. 
Mary, where is it? When does this dividend come back? What do you need to achieve to bring that back into play? Well, you know, we've had a capital allocation framework for the last several years where first we invest in opportunities to generate a return on invested capital of greater than 20%, as well as have an investment grade balance sheet and then return the rest to shareholders. And that's what we plan to do. But with all the opportunities we see in front of us to accelerate on EVs, accelerate AVs, and accelerate uh, the software or defined vehicle, we want to make sure we have maximum flexibility. And that's why we're not reinstating the dividend uh, as, as we currently assess the situation. Uh, you know, there still are other mechanisms to return um, value to shareholders, but we want to have the flexibility to really support our growth. Do you think buybacks make more sense? Is that what you're trying to say there? Well, again, you know, I, I think the first, there's three pillars of our capital allocation framework. To me, uh, making sure we're investing uh, in creating value and growth, I think, is the best thing we can do for our shareholders. But if, you know, we at the end we have excess capital, we are going to uh, use one of the mechanisms to be able to return that to our shareholders. You've mentioned demand a few times. Let's go through the numbers. The numbers are staggering. You've talked about this pent-up demand in the American market of several million vehicles. On the EV side, I was looking through the orders, the reservations, 59,000 Hummer EVs, 110,000 electric Chevy Silverados. I'm sure that if you open the books again for some of these names, they'll go again. They'll go again. Mary, have you ever seen demand this great in this country for this transition? You know, I, I just am uh, really in, encouraged by how much uh, interest there are in EVs. I, I really, last year, we started to see a tipping point. And that's why last year we uh, really, and in, in 20, we started accelerating our push to EVs. And, you know, we're uniquely positioned from a traditional OEM because we have the Ultium platform uh, that we started working on several years ago. We launched uh, the first vehicles off of it last year with the Hummer. And so that's enabling us to move quickly, but also have scale from a battery perspective that will, I think, give us a, a really efficient um, uh, margin as we make these transitions. So I'm very enthused with the interest in EVs, uh, the reservations, as you say. And I also think it goes to the fact that our products, our EV products off of Ultium, offer a lot of advantages from a range, from a performance, uh, you know, uh, flexibility. So uh, th this transformation is uh, pretty exciting. I can tell you're excited about it. I can tell you're excited about the margins. I can tell you're excited about the demand. Here's the delicate question. Why does this industry then need credits, need tax credits? Well, as you look at EVs, we do need to get uh, in, uh, customers into electric vehicles. We've seen that uh, the incentives do help drive EV adoption. And remember, we have aggressive goals from a country, from frankly, a country perspective and a global perspective from uh, what we need to do for the environment. So we think that will help, especially as all companies work to get battery costs down. I don't think it's a forever thing, but I think right now to get where we need to go from a market perspective, from a climate change, it's appropriate to do. What we're asking is, is let's make, make it a level playing field. We were a first mover. We're already out of today's credits. And we're saying, let's uncap them so uh, customers can truly buy what they want. When you say make it a level playing field, what do you make of the extra credits going, if this was implemented and pushed through by the White House, what would you make of the extra credits going to companies that are selling cars made with domestic union labor? Does that sound like a fair playing field to you? Well, you know, again, everybody, every workforce has the, the right to unionize. So it's a of choice course. that they're making. 
We're at General Motors. We're um, you know represented in the United States by the UAW and unions around the world. Uh, we've done a lot of great work together. So um, you know again, every company can make their choice, and, and the workforce can as well. Well, the White House has got to make a choice too, and you support it. I want to go through these credits. They're pushing for a $4,500 additional credit for vehicles that are made using domestic union labor. You get an additional $500 for manufacturers that use domestically produced batteries. And Mary, one thing that I've been confused by is why the push here? You've just gone through the demand story. It sounds fantastic. You're excited about it. I see the same thing at Ford. I don't see a demand problem here. I see an infrastructure problem which the government could be focusing on. Mary, why do you think we should be focusing at all on tax credits? You sat in the White House in the last couple of weeks and you supported that. You said getting strong demand is very important, but we have that demand. So Mary, again, why should we be focusing on that in any way, shape or form? Right. Well, I think what we're looking for is we have strong demand, but you know, when you look at how many EV sales there are today, we're in the single digits. We need to, by end of decade, to get to uh, 50%. And so that's where you've really got to have the right portfolio. That's what we're working on. But you've also got to you know, move the customer and, and get their interest. And so to get to the levels of adoption, we're just in the early phases right now. And I think that's important. Also, infrastructure, uh, EV charging infrastructure is very, very important. And the bipartisan bill that was passed for infrastructure, I think, is going to move the infrastructure along, along with what startup companies are doing. We're investing about a quarter of a billion dollars in charging to, again, to make sure that there um, any customer, even customers that only own one vehicle, know that they can count on their electric vehicle for their daily drive. And Mary, as you know, little mention of the Bolt EV in your letter. Some people have been raising a question as to whether that whole project gets canned as you retool your plants around the country. Mary, you're committed to that. Why does that still make sense? I'm sorry, could you re I couldn't hear your question. Sure, sorry. just on the Chevy Bolt, just on the Bolt itself. There's been some problems there, as you know. Some people have raised the question as to whether you should just ditch the whole project and focus on what you've been doing subsequently, which seems to be attracting massive demand. Why does that push there still make sense? Well, uh, first of all, it's a great product. Uh, I was most recently driving a Chevrolet Bolt EUV, and it's a, just a peppy vehicle, fun to drive. You know, our customers that have bought Bolt EVs or EUVs are some of the most satisfied customers in industry, not just with a GM product. So it's a great product. We had a very specific uh, issue with LG, our, um, our manufacturer of the batteries. We have worked with them. That's been corrected. And we're seeing, uh, you know, strong interest. And so that uh, the Chevrolet Bolt EV and EUV will be a very important part of our near near-term future for EVs. Have you got an EV market share goal for this year, Mary? What is it? Again, I'm sorry, you're coming in muffled. I'm so sorry. That's okay. I'm happy to repeat myself. Don't worry. Do you have an EV market share goal for this year? And if so, what is it? Uh, you know, we're working between 22 and 24 as we accelerate vehicles to sell uh, 400,000 um, or plan to build and sell 400,000 vehicles by the end of 2023. So uh, and that's just going to ramp up from there. So we're very, um, very optimistic about the strength of our products. And as we build them uh, again, we're seeing with the reservations they're sold. So that's our goal for the 22, 23 um, time frame. A final question for me. You've also taken the helm of the business roundtable in America, too. For you personally, what are the big goals there for you? Well, again, I think um, business, when we look at the transformation um, that's happening in almost every in industry, I think business uh, working together and also being a partner to uh, move the country forward is very important. So I'm very proud of my BRT role and uh, representing uh, companies as we uh, look to, to move to the future and you know really uh, create a, a, a stronger uh, country. So 
a, a really important opportunity and the work that BRT does is so important so I'm honored to be able to have the opportunity to lead them. And we're honored to have you with us this morning. Thank you for being with us. Looking forward to catching up through the year ahead. The General Motors <laughs> Chair and CEO, Mary Barra. Right now with Kroll Institute, a global chief economist, and that's an apt phrase for Megan Green with terrific transatlantic academic work. Megan, thank you so much for joining uh, this morning. How do you do a three-month moving average on something as emotional as the American labor economy? Do you single point it Friday, a grim number, or do you smooth it out to a moving average? I think you have to smooth it out. And also, it's it's not like bad numbers on Friday will be a surprise to anyone. It's been very well telegraphed by the White House, the Labor Secretary, the Fed. Um, the numbers should look pretty disappointing relative to what we've become accustomed to. But I've never ascribed too much meaning to any single data point, whether it's the jobs data or any other. And we know that our labor market <clears throat> is healing. The question, as you, as you guys pointed out, is really where did all the workers go uh, and are they ever coming back? I think that's what the Fed really needs to know to be able to gauge exactly how tight the labor market really is and therefore how they should be setting uh, their right. rate path going forward. Megan, a hallmark of your work is to wait for the data. What do you make of the present rate hike guessing parlor game? Is there any value to it? Are you are you saying to yourself, I got to wait for pitchers and catchers to see what the Red Sox will do and also to see what the rate structure will be? Yeah, more the latter, to be honest, Tom. I think that in six to nine months, we're going to be having a very different conversation around inflation yeah. and demand. Demand will be weakening over the course of this year. I think supply chain constraints should start to ease over the course of this year. Uh, and the supply of labor should also start to ease as the virus abates. Now, that's assuming there aren't more variants and certainly not more deadly variants. But as we move through this Omicron wave, uh, I think that a lot of workers will jump back into the workforce. Those who are staying home either because they're sick or they're taking care of someone who's sick. Those who haven't gone back into employment from retirement because of concerns of being sick. And those who have had a financial cushion uh, and so have stayed out of the labor market but are, have burned through them will have to jump into the labor market as well. And I think that will take a lot of upper pressure off of wages and therefore off inflation too. So, you know, it just seems like a competition to see who can get uh, more hawkish about the Fed's path going forward at the moment. I think that conversation should change towards the second half of this year. This does feel, though, uh, Megan, like a pivot point. And I talk about not just whether people come back to jobs, but which jobs they come back to. I've seen a number of surveys showing that people in manufacturing jobs are looking for office jobs, are looking to get retrained, want that flexibility to work from home. You've seen a complete sea change in terms of health care and education. How much will that increase wages in those less loved professions now that really got hit the hardest and were at the forefront of the pandemic? Yeah, I think you're right. People don't want hourly services jobs. They're low wage, low hour jobs. Uh, people, I think, have been holding out based on the financial cushion they've received from stimulus measures and to, to avoid going back into them. But at some point, there's going to have to be some capitulation. And so I do think those jobs will be filled again. Also, something worth mentioning is that immigration is massively down over the past two years. And it was a lot of foreign born workers who were also filling those jobs. Going forward, that should abate now that we don't have the same kind of travel restrictions that we had before. Biden's proposed um, some easing 
of immigration restrictions. And so those hourly services jobs should see some wage gains. It's the worker bees, the non-supervisory workers who are actually seeing the greatest wage gains right now. And that should spread into uh, you know, leisure, restaurants and bars as well. Well, Megan, that's what I was going to say. I mean, are we going to see outsized increases in some of these areas where people have to be enticed back away from the cushion that they're depleting in order to not have to go to work there? So I think wages have already risen quite a lot. And so as uh, low income households in particular burn through their financial cushion the fastest, as that cushion evaporates, I think the wage gains that we've seen will entice them back into the labor force. So I, I think that the supply side issue will probably abate. I mean, the best cure for high wages is high wages because people get pulled back into the labor force. And particularly once this wave starts to abate, it already has to some degree. I think we'll see the labor supply shortage ease as well. Megan, can you just help me in understanding how some of the data on Friday will be put together, how it has been put together? You're the perfect guest to do this. Just got this note from Capital Economics. I'm going to share it with our audience just quickly. Because the ADP figures count everybody on payroll as employed, regardless of whether they worked or not, they do not capture the full hit from the Omicron-related surge in absenteeism. They go on to say, with an estimated 5 million Americans isolating mid-month, we suspect close to half a million of those won't have been paid at all during the survey period, which wasn't captured in the ADP figures, but will show up in non-farm payrolls. Megan, can you just explain the technical situation around how this data is put together and how it might show up on Friday? Yeah, so that's right. The ADP is often not a great indicator of how the non-farm payrolls will go, though the direction of travel seems to be correct or, or similar in both these cases, assuming that we get a disappointing headline figure for tomorrow. But it is down to classifications. And so a number of people weren't able to go to work either because they had symptoms of Omicron or they had Omicron uh, and they won't have received a paycheck. And so that doesn't show up in the ADP data, which is only people who are receiving right. paychecks but that will show up in the non-farm payrolls data. Megan, I want to go the Transatlantic Act with you. And right now what we're seeing is maybe a yield structure in America that migrates higher and a Europe yield structure, which some would say stays where it is, maybe even with negative interest rates. What is the outcome for our viewers and listeners of such a spread, a difference in yield across the pond? Well, we're seeing monetary policy divergence, which uh, should push yields up in the U.S., particularly at the short end. Um, whereas the ECB, uh, you know, investors have started to price in hikes for this year, uh, but at a much more gradual rate than what we're seeing in the U.S. Um, that means that, you know, you'll still be facing negative yields in Europe, whereas there will be much more positive yields. Now, I don't think the long end will go up significantly in the U.S. I've been asked why would anyone buy a 10-year government bond with a 2% 2 yield. Um, and it's because you could go elsewhere, Europe, Japan, and it will be negative. So, uh, you know, the U.S. Treasury ends up being the cleanest shirt in the dirty laundry basket. Megan Green, wonderful, as always, with your experience out of Europe, too, of the Kroll Institute and the Harvard Kennedy School. Evan Brown joins us now, multi-asset strategy head at UBS <laughs> Asset Management. I won't ask you that question, Evan. Don't worry. I'm going to ask you about the note that you wrote with Luke Cower. I thought it was fantastic. What we've seen is a valuation-centric adjustment. You don't think it's a growth scare. How do you draw a distinction between the two, Evan? Well, I mean, a, a lot of it is just uh, 
looking at prices cross asset. And if it was really a growth scare, you'd expect to see more widening in credit, which we just have not gotten. You, you wouldn't expect to see EM outperforming, which is what we've gotten. So we look cross asset, oil too, holding up really well. And, uh, and so we don't see it in price, but also it just doesn't really make a lot of sense economically when you have income growth uh, almost double what it was last cycle. Uh, so it's still a strong economy, still strong nominal GDP. And as Powell said last week, we're in a different cycle than the last one. Well, let's sit on the valuation scare for a minute, Evan. How do we determine what the scare should be in terms of what real rates are going to be uh, with the Fed action? And, and sort of how do you game that out with respect to what's already happened in markets? Yeah, so I think uh, I, I think first of all, the point is that the Fed wanted this, right? They, they want a tightening of financial conditions. It, it, in their view, is a way that's going to cool inflation down the road and extend the cycle. Now, you know, it's up to them to decide how much. We, you know, we saw quite a hawkish Fed, uh, but then now you're seeing a parade of Fed speakers this week saying, hey, we're not going to do 50 basis points uh, at, at the next uh, Fed meeting in March. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a dance between the Fed and markets. I think the frothier areas of the market will continue to have headwinds, you know, unprofitable tech, these kind of things. But the more cyclical areas of the market, I think we're unfairly punished in uh, in this more recent sell off. And those are going to uh, be the big gainers over the, the coming weeks and months. Evan, what do your analysts say? about the ability of corporations to adapt to sustain margin. The first thing I did yesterday with Google is go to look at the margin, and it was a fractional lift off the parlor game of guessing margin. But what, you know, sector to sector, the the 200 analysts you've got at UBS, what do they say about the ability to sustain margin? I mean, margins are fine in the data. We don't quite have uh, what we've seen over the over the last couple of years, but so there's some moderation there. But overall, the message that we're getting from corporates is is really strong pricing power. Uh, and so, you know, we just look at the data, and yes, the the analysts internally, and we just even with higher wages, we see that higher pricing power. So it just does not appear to be a major concern at this point. Evan, where are you and the team on the rest of the world at the moment? Big surprise for some people through the first month of the year was the relative outperformance of, say, emerging markets. Is that something you think can persist? I think it can, actually. Uh, we have the difference between this year and last year is, is China's easing, right? Uh, we're not going to see the boom in credit growth that we got in the previous cycle, those boom-bust periods, but they've put a floor on GDP growth, and that has implications for the rest of the world. So, uh, emerging markets, I think, can have a better year. We think the dollar is uh, kind of weakens from here, or at least stops strengthening. Uh, Europe, I think, will look back on 2022 and say this was Europe's year. Uh, it's not just the the solid global growth outlook, but you've got all the green spending. You've got more political cohesion, certainly, than we saw last cycle. You've got really strong balance sheets, uh, and you've got inflation, right? And that should put upward pressure on on yields um, and higher yields is good for financials. So uh, so I, we really like the rest of the world and we think the rest of the world will, will outperform the U.S. Uh, for the first time in a while this uh, this year. High yields haven't helped out the U.S. banks in a big way year to date, Evan. Do you have more confidence they will in, say, Europe relative to what we've seen in the U.S.? Well, I think there's a bigger valuation discount and uh in european banks uh, not i think i know <laughs> and uh and and also you know you have more room i think the boon yields at zero percent 
that is extraordinarily low. We all we all know the presence of the central bank there and and downbeat whether downbeat whether Europe and and uh, Europe can sustain growth and inflation over the over the medium term. But the valuation story is there. There's a lot more room in uh, in boon yields to to reprice, which should help European banks. And uh, and you know it's a really it's a really positive story. We're seeing it in the earnings as well. Evan, thank you, buddy. Send our best to the team and to Luke too. It's great to catch you. Right now, in a broader conversation with Michael Nathanson, you've seen him quoted everywhere, as he deservedly should be. As a senior research analyst at Moffat Nathanson barely describes the fact he owns the phrase, content is king. Michael, I want to go to Apple developing 550,000, almost 10 football fields of square feet in Culver City, out by Irvine, you know, there's this gigantic plant. Are Google, our Apple, are they going to take over everything? Um, it depends on which business we're talking about, Tom. I would say Apple and video, probably not. Google and advertising, probably yes. Um, but Apple doesn't need to dominate in video. They've done great on their own. But, you know, the Google print to me is just, it's mind-blowingly good. When you think about how large that company is and how fast they're growing. We have heard from day one, the day Google went public, that there was a constraint on search. Everyone, including me, has been wrong. What's your terminal, what's the x-axis of your terminal value when you look at search? Do you go out five years or 15 years? Yeah, Tom, that's, a, that's the point, right? That everyone fades growth on search to like mid-single digits. We go out 15 years on it because what is happening is big picture Search is getting more valuable in the world. As many of us stop watching linear TV, as Apple has put up blockers on, you know, for privacy, search just goes up in value because we're giving people intention, right? When, when, you, when you search, you're telling people what you want to see, and that is a perfect lead for advertisers. So that's been our thesis, that people underestimate search and, and just the long cycle of growth here. And that's, that's the, the essence of the call on Google. Mike, it's better than you think. Michael, yep. do you think that this reduces the emphasis on diversification that a lot of people are looking for with the cloud, with YouTube, which actually disappointed? You know, it's funny because, Lisa, when we look at the stock, you don't need diversification for the stock to work. We can just look at the core ad business. But I, I think in Google's world, they have so much talent in terms of technology talent. They have, so, they have an incredible advantage in machine learning. They'd be foolish not to you know, take that and lean into other businesses. So um, we're not giving them a lot of credit for, for Google Cloud or for other bets. But YouTube in our world you know, is a really underappreciated asset. Again, going back to the big picture, it's rising in value. So you know, we don't underestimate YouTube. So YouTube and search alone gives us enough upside for the stock without the other things really kicking in. Michael, how much is Google an anomaly and sort of an idiosyncratic story of incredible strength and dominance versus a representation of an economy that's really recovering with advertising spending going up so much, even without travel picking back up to pre-pandemic levels? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think it is idiosyncratic because of search's value in the world and YouTube. When we wrap up earnings season for media, and, you know, and other small small ad companies they will not grow nearly this fast and they'll have problems with structural headwinds here. And Google has a tailwind that is unique to Google. Michael, what did you and Craig think yesterday 
of AT&T doing a ballet from $15 billion spent on dividends to a modeled $9 billion. Oh, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do $8 billion. I believe the stock was down 6%. Don't, you know, I, I believe that was the number. What does it say about escapades in entertainment? Right. Well, Craig was here. He would take a bow because for the past five years, he's been saying AT&T can't sustain the dividend. It says that um, the cost of competing in streaming is incredibly high. That's been our call on streaming, as you know. And it says in the telecom world, uh, the cost to compete there is incredibly high, too, because of all the promotional activities being done, because of 5G build-out. Um, you know, these businesses are a lot more challenging than I think the market thinks. And again, it's easy when you look at Google to say that's where you want to be. You know, we're, we're relatively negative on streaming. We're they're pivoting out away from and telecom as well in terms of mobile telecom. Michael, just a final question from me. I think it's important yeah. not to let moments like this slip or slide. This is a $1.8 trillion name moving 10%. Michael, what do you yeah. make of that? Multi-trillion dollar names moving this much. These are huge amounts of money. Well, Jonathan, they grew their revenue. They grew their top line 30%. Just unreal. 30%. Search has been around for 20 years, right? Search grew faster than YouTube this quarter. Um, and again, if you stop back and think about what we learned this pandemic, this is about digital transformations. And Google has the best position in advertising because of what you know, advertisers need to do. They need to pivot to search and you pivot to YouTube. And even though this has been around forever, the transformation of the pandemic has accelerated budgets. And I agree. When I first started covering it, I'm like, this cannot be as good as it looks. And now six years later, it, they keep going. They really do. It's just phenomenal. Michael, we appreciate your support yep. on this program and your contribution this morning. As always, sir, thank you, mate. Michael Nathanson of Moffitt Nathanson. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.